Just over two weeks ago, six of us from First Parish flew to Tulsa, Oklahoma for a three-day conference titled Leading Congregations into a Multiracial, Multicultural Future. Now is the time. I invite the participants to stand when I read your name. Ken Adams, Marsha Hams, Maury Mullen, Eileen Sullivan, and Dwight McGee had to work this morning. Please be seated. And those who are going to be speaking, come on up. How do we approach and embrace multiculturalism? The conference publicity asked. How do we learn to see and challenge the ways in which white culture and privilege define our community? How do we lead into this different future from where we are now? How do we create and sustain congregations that are truly welcoming and inclusive? What compels us? I know what compels me. Martin Luther King Jr.'s radical and enduring vision of beloved community in which our differences are respected, celebrated, and ultimately transcended in unity of spirit. This vision has galvanized and tantalized me since I was a child, always receding just over the horizon. Well, I'm tired of waiting. I'm tired of thinking about it, preaching about it, even singing about it. I want to see it. I want to touch it. I want to taste it. Before I die. We were welcomed at the conference by the Reverend Gerald Davis, the blind African-American minister of the Unitarian Universalist Church of the Restoration in Tulsa. His church stands in Greenwood. The black Wall Street of Tulsa burned to the ground in the race riot of 1927, in which hundreds of African-Americans were slaughtered by white mobs. Yet he told us the connectedness that brings us face to face together is all about love. We are here to deal in love, he said, with very, very complicated issues. You will be assaulted. He said, the bedrocks of your awareness will begin to shift, but you are here because you made a commitment to love and justice a long, long time ago. Keynoting the conference was Mark Hicks, an African-American Unitarian Universalist and Associate Professor of Educational Transformation at George Mason University. Dr. Hicks spoke on inclusive excellence inclusive excellence, which seeks cultural competency and honors diversity as central to congregational theology and mission. Excellence, Dr. Hicks argued, cannot and does not exist without diversity. 
As human beings, he said, we will always be partial. Partial as in preference. I'm partial to classical music. And partial as in incomplete, not whole. So we can relax, he said, and be compassionate toward our partiality, even as we strive to expand it. But the principle that excellence cannot exist without diversity challenges us here at First Parish. It means that for all our Harvard connections, for all our illustrious ancestors, we are not and have never been excellent. Not when our ancestors smote the heathens who peopled the land we coveted. Not when our meeting house hosted the trial that banished Anne Hutchinson as a heretic. Not when our congregation was silent about slavery. And not now. Not yet. But if not yet excellent, we are good. We are people of compassion and conscience and sometimes courage. People with work to do. Exciting and challenging and joyful work. Dr. Hicks suggested 10 ways to starve inclusive excellence. See if you recognize any of these. Number one, go it alone. Number two, be efficient. Number three, quickly judge. Number seven, canonize ideas, history, experiences. Number eight, privilege traditions. Number nine, glorify expertise. Number 10, fester hidden emotions, fear, anger, anxiety, etc. Ring any bells? Then conference presenters handed out two lists, one headed white culture norms, the other multicultural norms. Basically, the white culture norms were bad. <laughs> Either or thinking, scarcity mentality, secrecy, individualistic action, that kind of thing. The multicultural norms were good, both and thinking, abundant worldview, transparent communication, collaboration, cooperation, etc. Naturally, the white folks started getting uncomfortable. One raised her hand and suggested we call the white culture norms dominating culture norms. Another proposed corporate culture norms, at which point the minister of a large church with major financial backing from business executives defended corporations. <laughs> then a former Black Panther got up and said, in his experience, the African-American Baptist Church displays many of the white culture norms on the list. <laughs> An African-American presenter insisted, if we're going to talk about race, we have to talk about whiteness. There was anger and fear in that room. But it was not named. It was not claimed. 
the issue was not resolved. I felt frustrated and discouraged. But that afternoon, we broke into small groups, instructed to create a skit about planning a birthday party. After the skits, one small group began to confess the difficulties and tensions they'd encountered in the exercise. An older Latina in the group felt she'd been shunted aside and not heard. Others protested they'd asked her to join, but she said she felt there hadn't really been room for her to contribute. An African-American man not in that group asked, had they begun with introductions around the circle? They answered no. If you don't know who you're talking to, he asked, how can you include everybody? An African-American presenter pointed out the tyranny of result. They could have dropped the skit planning to make sure everyone's feelings were respected, but they succumbed instead to the pressure of time and performance. I thought of how many committee meetings here at First Parish forego check-ins because the agenda is already so full. The conversation was painful and full of feeling, but it was real. It was healing. It left me feeling hopeful, uplifted, full of possibility. As Om Prakash John Gilmore, an African-American Unitarian Universalist minister, told us, this is grief work. To heal the wounds of our past, he said, we have to talk about them. Unitarian Universalists love ideas. We love concepts. We love to define them. We love to analyze them. And we love to argue about them. That's where we can get stuck in our differences, which are real enough. But when we share our stories, when we say, this happened to me, and this is how I felt, that's when insight and understanding and transformation can occur. That's when we can reach across our differences and unite in the spirit of love. My name is Eileen Sullivan, and I want to share some of the experiences from Tulsa. In the past 10 years, First Parish has had three congregational conversations and many smaller conversations about our hopes and dreams for the future. Becoming a multicultural congregation and working on anti-racism have been a major theme in those conversations. But until I went to the conference in Tulsa, I don't think I really understood what it meant to build a multicultural community as part of my spiritual community. Diversity work has been part of my community volunteer life or my professional life. I think I've actually participated in 13 day long or weekend workshops on diversity or anti-racism. But I realized spending the day at diversity training with my work colleagues is very different than doing this work with members of my spiritual community. 
On Sunday morning in Tulsa, we went to the All Souls Church. They have two worship services which have identical sermons. The music differs. The 1130 service features the New Dimensions, a primarily African-American choir that sings praise music. Looking around the pews on that Sunday, it appeared to me that about 70 to 80 percent of the people were white. Many of the elements of the service would be familiar here at First Parish. The music was the major difference, along with a feeling that is hard to describe. One way to make it concrete is to talk about clapping. Anytime we have a discussion about worship here at First Parish, there are different opinions about clapping. Here, when people clap for the choir, usually after a beautiful anthem, it feels to me like we're rewarding a wonderful performance, rather than it being part of the worship experience. Well, in Tulsa, they clap. They clap a lot. And it was joyous, and there was no question it was part of worshiping. They clapped on several different occasions, after music, after the sermon, and it felt to me like they were participating, that they were showing approval. They were showing enthusiasm. They weren't just sitting back, listening. They were participating actively. I think of coming to church on Sunday as a time to get recharged for the week. I often think about what I'm grateful for, what challenges I might be facing, and how to make sure I stay centered in my UU values. My dream is that I also leave here knowing that I'm helping to create a more just world, a world that honors multicultural values. We're starting a journey to make that real. It will require change and self-reflection. It may not always be easy, but I hope it will be full of joy and some clapping. Good morning. Good morning. My <laughs> my name is Maury Molan. I didn't forget my name this time. I'm very proud. Okay. On April 4th, the second day of the conference, we traveled by bus to the Unitarian Church of Tulaqua, Oklahoma, established in 1996, which is about 10 miles from Tulsa. The church in Tulaqua is small, single-story rectangle with lovely stained glass of purple and blue. At one end, there is a window with a large chalice in stained glass. There is much light in the church, a huge drum, a small tree, and a large metal chalice which was lit for the occasion. This church has Native American members, and we were honored to enter a sacred drum circle to share a rare opportunity in intercultural exchange. We were greeted individually when we arrived by Monisha Attuck, a Cherokee woman, who later told us she was also Irish and Scottish. She is a woman of presence, strength, and warmth, an obvious leader. She informed us in a bemused way that Telequa is the Cherokee word and means this is the place. I want to end with a tiny story that Monisha Attuck told us about her childhood. I call this story Monisha Attuck's diversity story. When I was a child, my Cherokee grandfather 
always spoke to me like I was an adult. I was sometimes carried by him when we went for walks together and I could speak with him about my thoughts. It was during one of these walks that I said to him, Grandfather, I am not a really Cherokee. I am only half Cherokee. We walked a little further and he put me down to stand on the ground of the Oklahoma prairie. He walked all around me and looked at me closely. He looked from my head to my feet and back again and on every side too. Then he stopped and asked me, which half is Cherokee? Yeah. I'm Marcia Hams, <clears throat> and I came to First Parish in 2001. My wife Susan and I have found a home here, in part because we have been welcomed and supported as lesbians. The congregation voted to become a welcoming congregation the year we joined, and in 2004 took a public stand for gay marriage. The conference in Tulsa has given me faith that this congregation, in a similar way, can realize our aspirations of becoming a multicultural, multiracial community. It gave me faith because we learned a lot at the conference and because the conference looked like what we envisioned, a gathering of Unitarian Universalists that was probably half people of color, half white, being led by leaders committed to helping us wrestle with our challenges and share in the joy of deeper communication. As Eileen and Maury describe our visits to the small congregation and the reservation in Tulaqua and the big multiracial UU church in Tulsa also made this vision real. Kelly Anqua, a Kiowa and master drummer, said he found the home he was looking for at the Unitarian Church in Tahlequah, a multicultural, liberal, activist community that has sustained him. At that church, we were led in a large listening circle, used in their worship and passed a traditional talking stick from one to the other, allowing each person to speak from the heart. We use this technique here at First Parish for our small groups at times. At the conference the day before, the Tahlequah minister, a Cherokee, described how the listening circle has helped Native Americans participate more fully when communicating with people from other cultures who tend to be louder and more dominating in a group. At the Tulsa Second Service that Eileen described, an African-American style of worship is blended with the traditional UU style, which of course is a white European tradition. I have sung gospel music in the Mystic Chorale, a community chorus, and I love the music but struggle sometimes with the words. But singing the praise music together in Tulsa in a liberal UU church that is deeply felt to be home for everyone there, with people coming from many different religious homes or not religious homes, I felt transformed and the music became my own in a new way. There were many stories told that weekend that gave me faith in our future, knowing that the work of change is hard but deeply rewarding and will make us all better champions for justice. One inspiration was Kevin, a 20-something gay Filipino from, from San Diego. Unitarian Universalism is his home too and he loves it fiercely but he's pushing hard for change. He wrote a poem that weekend, his first public poem, and the conference organizer asked him to read it as we closed. It's called Victory. It's very long, and I have copies if you'd like to see it, but I want to read you a few lines. Victory. Can you imagine the victory when we win? It will be as if heaven's love rained down from the sky and flooded the earth with peace. 
When we win, the ways of the ancestors will become relevant and their teachings will be burned into our skin. When we win, Indians, blacks, Chicanos, Filipinos, Asians, and whites will stand in solidarity with one another, fists raised high, united together as one people. Whoever you are, whatever circles you travel with, know that there is a movement waiting for your touch, waiting for your unique soul to bless it with your presence.